This is The Cable. Big bid on 10-year treasuries over the last week. Is this just a political fight, some political theatre? A lot of people saying, no, thank you, step back. You're saying, get in, why? Your connection from the London market close to the US market action. It is too easy just to blame Brexit. Surely it can't be anything means bye, bye, bye. The Cable. An historic moment from which there can be no turning back. With Jonathan Farrow on Bloomberg Radio. This is The Cable for the City of London. Hello, hello across the capital on DAB Digital Radio, a special Christmas edition of The Cable on the year that was and the year to come. Today we work our way through all things Brexit and what a year it was for Theresa May. The Prime Minister called an election, lost a majority, called on the DUP to keep the Conservatives in power and even managed to do the unthinkable, bringing some Remainers and Brexiteers together, agreeing that for many the negotiation process was a total mess. In relation to the movement of people, the common travel area will continue to uh, operate as it has done since 1923. And on trade and movement of goods and services across the border, uh, we will not see uh, a hard border being introduced. I was clear in my speech in Florence that we will honour our commitments. Um, But of course, we want to move forward together, uh, talking about the trade uh, issues and trade partnership for the future. On a couple of issues, some differences do remain, which require further negotiation and consultation. We will ensure that there is no hard border between Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland. We will do that while we respect the constitutional integrity of the United Kingdom. On many of the issues there is a common understanding, but it is cl- and it's clear, crucially, that we want to move forward together. Negotiations are in progress and very good progress has been made in those Very good progress has been made. Phase one, I'm told, is done. An agreement, at least partially, around the uh, divorce bill. An agreement, at least partially, around the rights of EU citizens. And an agreement, although kind of partially, around what the border will look like between Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland. So full steam ahead to phase two, the uh, post-Brexit relationship and what relations will look like between the EU and the UK after 2019. Working our way through the next hour in the world of Brexit, I'm very pleased to say a friend of this programme, Ken Vexler, Director at Acumen Management, Richard Jones, FX and Rate Strategist, and Alistair McCaig, Director of Investment Management at Fern Wealth. Can we all agree, Al, beginning with you, that this was a moment where the Prime Minister managed to bring together Brexiteers and Remainers for us all to agree that the way this has been handled so far has been ugly, terrible and messy? I think Brexit means Brexit is a, a clear indication of how lack, how much lack of clarity there really is in this whole situation. And uh, trying to bind together two such opposing mindsets has proven a poison chalice that pretty much most of us thought would, would, would materialise. What about you, Rich? What's the sense from Berlin? Do you sense the messy negotiation that we experienced in the UK? Well, it's interesting, John, because I moved to Berlin what, about four or five months ago now. So I've, I've got certainly a new perspective on everything, which I'll talk about in a second. But, but the, 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 the initial uh, after the art, triggering of Article 50 and, 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 and everything after the referendum, I was in London for that. And it's interesting to see um, just the, the, the difference between how uh, uh, Brexit is perceived in the UK and how it's perceived here in, in Berlin. Um, in Berlin, I think everybody kind of looks at it with a little bit of amusement. Um, they, they don't really understand what the UK thinking is. Why would anybody want to leave the EU? It doesn't make any sense to people here. I think businesses, 
um, uh, and and I think I think the general population you could say as well, but but definitely businesses are looking at it and they feel um, a little bit disappointed. I think they yeah. feel that that it's there's a, a sense of regret about the UK leaving, but there's a real determination here to just to, to get on with it, and move ahead, and and make sure that the single market functions smoothly. Now you look in the UK and it's been it's been just. Uh, everybody seems to be pulling out their hair on this, and it's it's the dominant issue of the day. And and you can understand why it's it's going to uh, it's a fundamental rethink about a, a new approach of, of the UK um, undoing the last forty or fifty years of of, of sort of economic um, uh, arrangements with the with the EU. And and it, it just seems to me that the EU is sort of looking at it very dispassionately, very uh, very. Practically, very in a very calculated way, whereas in in the UK it's much more emotive, and and yeah. I think from that standpoint, that's the thing that struck me the most is that you know it's page one news in the UK. It's not even it doesn't even make the papers here. Ken, do you get the feeling that phase two is going to be even tougher than phase one? Yeah, but most most definitely. I mean, if you look comparatively at what's entailed within the dynamics of what's to be negotiated in phase two versus phase one, uh, it's, it's incrementally more significant and or, or significantly you know, uh, greater. So as a consequence, the nuance and the terms and the twist of that very, uh, that very issue is going to make it a lot more complicated and a lot more drawn out. So having taken you know, near on 18 months to get this far, yeah. God help us how long the next phase is going to take. Al, how long is this going to take? And do you get the feeling that actually we haven't really agreed much in phase one anyway? Because to decide what the Irish border is going to look like, you need to define phase two, don't you? Yeah, look, I think we we always knew that the the early phases of this was going to be a slow-moving beast and things would pick up as time ticked on and pressures began to mount in regards to deadlines looming ever closer. We're talking about trying to negotiate effectively 43 years' worth of treaties with uh, the EU uh, and fitting that all into the existing timeline was never going to happen. Even with a two-year extension, you feel that's a pretty optimistic target to be aiming for anyway. And you do feel that uh, push comes to shove. We're going to have more political instability in the UK, which may well materialise long before we get to any deadlines. Rich Michel Barnier over in Europe is turning the screws. One moment he's saying that the uh, the city's not going to get a special deal and we'll spend a little bit of time in a moment talking about that. And then the next second he's defining when the, uh, when the transition period will expire. Are the terms being almost exclusively set by Europe and not by the UK? Well, I, I definitely think Europe has the stronger negotiating hand here. And it's shown in the, in the first phase of talks, I think, that, that, Europe, that the UK really migrated towards the European position on so many of these issues. Um, and I think we're going to see more of the same in, in the second round. And, and you know what? I think it, the way you, you just described it, sort of like uh, Barnier seems to be setting the terms and and I and because the the EU is in such a strong negotiating position, I don't know what the UK comeback is to those things. Yeah. I re- I'm really not sure what they, it is. How um, we started so this think- conversation talking about Prime Minister May and what a year she's had. Does Prime Minister May hold on to power in 2018? 
It's a good question. I think the next question is who wants it off of her? Because yeah. the, the, you know, the timeline for And who does Europe happen- want to negotiate with as well? Well, yeah, yeah, exactly. I, 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 you know, does Boris Johnson want this job? It does. It, you know, do, what's the upside here? Because whoever takes over, you feel that come the end of negotiations, when this finally does pan out in three years' time, in longer time frame, uh, you know, there's a more than fighting chance that at least half the population are going to be disgruntled, if not all the population are going to be disgruntled with the end terms that finally yeah. materialise in front of us. It. it, it doesn't seem like a position you really want to be challenging for at the moment and I think there's there's a chance through default rather than anything else that, that may will continue to bumble along for the for the net for the foreseeable future Ken Vexler director and acumen management alongside Bloomberg's Richard Jones and Alistair McCaig of Fernwealth sticking with me next up on the program we'll take it to the city of London and the future of banking. This is The Cable with Jonathan Farrow on Bloomberg Radio. This is The Cable for the City of London. Hello, hello across the capital on DAB Digital Radio, a special Christmas edition of The Cable on the year that was and the year to come. Today, we work our way through all things Brexit, and it was one of the big concerns in negotiations, the City of London and the future possibly without EU passporting. But for all the bluster, there has been very little action. Plans drawn up to relocate some businesses, maybe, but an exodus of talent, certainly not. It's not a threat. It's a fact that we will simply have to accommodate the new uh, requirements. We have to be not in the forecasting business about this. We have to be in the contingency planning business, which is the rub. Because without knowing how things will turn out, we have to plan for a number of contingencies. And our hope is that we don't have to implement anything until we know what it is we have to implement. The Brits will decide how they want to compete around the world, who they negotiate with. It's not up to me, it's up to uh, you know, the Prime Minister and uh, the Parliament at this point. We're trying to avoid, we're trying to stay as close to home as possible. It is my opinion that it's a terrible deal for the British economy and jobs. Strange things happen, but I'm as confident about that statement as I am about anything else, with, given that there are things outside our control. You were listening to Lloyd Blankfein of Goldman Sachs, the CEO, and of course the CEO of JP Morgan, Jamie Dimon. With me to walk through the future of the city, Ken Vexler of Acumen, Richard Jones of Bloomberg, and Alistair McCaig of Fern Wealth. Ken, we've talked a lot over the months, over the last year, about the future of the city of London. Is there any reason to be optimistic at this point, given that actually, for all the fear, not much has happened at this point? Look, it's, it's only as optimistic as the following pricing. I would price the likelihood of us either falling off the cliff edge come uh, March 19 or walking away from this entirely at 50-50. Really? So even money. Yeah, genuinely. At this point in time, I mean, we'll see what the next month or two brings, but at this point in time, honestly, that's where I see it. Now, based on that, Lloyd Blankline is, is, is 100% correct. They are now in the business of contingency management yeah. rather than forecasting. So as a consequence, they need to manage that process. The only thing they can do is, is hedge their bets. And as a consequence, they're looking for offshore office space. They're looking to move people and operations because right now it doesn't look particularly positive for them. Well, as a consequence, he's looking at Frankfurt apparently. He tweeted out, of course, earlier this year that he's spending a lot more time in Frankfurt and he quite likes it. Richard Jones, is Germany ready to house some of these units from some of the trading desks uh, in the city of London? Yeah, 
you know, you're never going to get a single European financial capital the way London has been um, over the past 25, 30 years. Um, uh, but there will be some dislocation. And, and you know, I, I think some yeah. of the banks are looking at Dublin. Some of the banks are looking at Frankfurt. Some at Paris. So, you know, so I, I think that... that 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 is inevitable, and I and I I think Ken's right. This is the very banks, and you know, as as the clock ticks towards that deadline, it becomes more immediate. And I think in the next few months, we'll start to see a little bit more flesh on the bone of these plans that have sort of been touted. Um, but it makes sense that at, at some stage, the the banks are going to have to say, okay, we're going to make a decision on this. Um, London London will never die as a financial center. It'll always it, it survived a lot of different things in its history. Yeah. But it's not going to be the same as it's been in the past, for the past twenty five years, that's for sure. Now just finally from you, where is the point of no return for these banks where those contingency plans actually have to be executed? Well, I, I think uh, when Ken was saying, if 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 we hit a, a crossroads and it's a hard crossroads, yeah. um, you know, next next year, and and if that materialises, then then that's the the point of no return. As it looks at the moment, it looks like we're sort of fudging an extension of two years, and I think that gives them the banks and and banks is a very broad terminology for all the different financial aspects we're talking about here, but it gives them a little bit more wriggle room. It gives them the ability to postpone making hard decisions. And, and they're utilising that, that, that sliding timeline for the time being. And it looks like um, the EU side of things, at least, is utilising the City of London as a pretty big negotiating chip on their behalf because they know how much it means to the UK. Guys, you're sticking with me. Ken Vexler of Ankiman Management, Richard Jones of Bloomberg and Alistair McCaig of Fern Wealth. Next up on the programme, well, despite Brexit, how many times did we hear that? Despite Brexit. Well, despite Brexit, we got the first rate hike in over a decade in the UK. Mr. Carney finally delivered. That's next. You're listening to Bloomberg Radio. This is The Cable. This is The Cable with Jonathan Farrell on Bloomberg Radio. For the City of London, across the capital on DAB Digital Radio, a special Christmas edition of The Cable for you on the year that was and the year to come. We focus on Brexit and all things UK. It took a decade and more, but this year Carney teased us with the idea of a rate hike, teased us a little bit more, and then, like an uncharacteristically reliable boyfriend, he actually delivered. The judgment of the majority of the committee is that some raise in interest rates in coming months may be appropriate in order to have that sustainability. In order to keep inflation or return inflation to that 2% target in a sustainable manner, um, there may need to be some adjustment of interest rates in coming months. We must aim to bring inflation back to target and to keep it there once the effects of temporary factors, currently predominantly those caused by the referendum-related fall in sterling, Dissipate. So in many respects, today's decision is straightforward. The Bank of England has increased bank rate for the first time in a decade, raising it by a quarter of a percentage point to a half a percent. That was Governor Carney. The rate hike finally came. Ken Vexler, Director of Acumen Management with me today, alongside Richard Jones, FX and Rate Strategist, and Alistair McCaig, Director of Investment Management at Fern Wealth. Ken, is this the beginning of something or just the removal of accommodation that they introduced post-Brexit? How do you characterise the first rate hike in over a decade in the UK? Uh, I would characterise it as purely the removal of uh, accommodative uh, rate-setting policy 
post-referendum. I don't think it's the beginning of anything other than uh, marching down the clock towards the end of Carney's uh, term and tenure. And frankly, I think we are where we are, and that's not going to change because if you take a listen to what Carney has said over the course of the year, if you look at the data and the like, there is absolutely no good reason to be hiking rates or embarking on a hiking cycle anytime soon in the UK. So why does it make sense to just have one and done, Ken? Because quite frankly, and, and as we all know, or all of us in markets at least, know that the vast majority, if not all of the inflation that we've seen uh, come into the UK has been currency depreciation-led. Now, the only way you're going to stave that off is with a stronger currency. The currency is not going to suddenly bounce of its own accord given the political mess that it's facing over the next probably decade. So as a consequence, the only thing you can do is try and induce uh, a bit more flow into the economy and as a consequence, raise rates. Raise rates or at least talk about rates yeah. and then finally do something. And here we are. The, the sterling reacted. Inflation hasn't come off as a consequence, but it is a moving uh, target. So we should hopefully see that float off just a little bit more. Richard Jones, you and I have spent so much time talking about Carney as the unreliable boyfriend. Remember the politician not long after he teased us with a rate hike over three years ago and did not deliver. What changed this year for the governor? Why did it suddenly become real? Well, I, th- I think there's a real... First of all, I think Ken is absolutely right. I don't think this is the beginning of a, of a, of a, uh, a sharp... Run I've heard so much of Ken is absolutely right on this program <laughs> through 2017. Carry on, Rich. Yeah, listen, listen to Ken Vexler and, you, and you'll be absolutely fine. I'm sick of um, hearing it. Go on. The, 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 thing, the thing about what's going on uh, with the UK is that if they're hiking rates and growth is, is, is at 1.5% this year, um, and growth in the next few years is going to be about 1.5%. It's a new normal. It's an acknowledgement of a new normal by the Bank of England, and it's not really great news for the, for the long-term prognosis of the UK economy. Um, yeah. and, and, and I think the reasons why they hiked, I think Ken, Ken again, is, is correct on that. And if you take the bank at their, at their, uh, at their word, they're going to hike another couple times in the next few years. That's Do you take them on their the word, Rich? Do you take well. them on their word? Well, the, the, I think the market's bought into that, and I think for for the first time in a very long time, the market and the bank are sort of aligned with what they think. Um, and so, if you take that, if you take that for what it is, it, it's it's a it's a pretty slow moving UK economy. Um, it's it's not very dynamic. You, I look at, and I know we're going to talk about Europe in, in a little bit, but if we compare it to Europe and the US, the, the UK is going to have slower growth over the next few years. It has this year. It, it, it's kind of a depressing prognosis, to be honest. And, and, and I think that's what the bank is acknowledging. Yeah. Alistair McKay, the story of the UK, actually the forecast has got it right. Negative real earnings. It would have inflation higher and you would have uh, wage growth just not keep up with headline inflation. That's the backdrop to all of this. And what's increasingly interesting to a lot of people is the idea that you can have unemployment in the low fours, but wage growth not accelerate. We see that dynamic in the United States and we see it front and centre in the UK. Do you foresee a, a situation in the UK economy where things start to get a little bit better, that wage growth comes through and starts to keep up with the rate of inflation? Well, as Ken was talking about earlier there, currency strength, sterling strength has played a large part in in inflation outlook and projections for the UK. And there's so much more uncertainty that's going to continue to hover over the pound for the next 
six, 12, 18 months. But, uh, you know, the timeline is very difficult to get any clarity on. Yeah. Do we believe that the, the Bank of England wants to raise rates? Yeah, I think they, I believe that they want to, whether they're going to be able to and whether they're going to have the economic data that's going to allow. Well, do you see anything in the economic data, Al, at this point in terms of the way you forecast the UK economy? Is there anything in the economic data that suggests that the Bank of England can get away a couple of times? And what would it be based on? The short answer to that is no. I, I don't think there is. You, you, you would be shoehorning it rather than legitimising it through through data at this point in time. It doesn't seem like we're going to be given the opportunity. When it comes to the unemployment as well, we're seeing a migrational change in, in employment patterns anyway, from permanent jobs to contracting jobs. And that's a platform that we're seeing on a global basis. So yeah. I don't think from that point of view, we, we, we're necessarily going to see a big shift in the unemployment levels either. Ken, just quickly, 2017 seemingly was the year that the UK economy got left behind by the rest in the uh, in terms of the, the uh, developed world is that the story for next year too uh it is if you buy into the narrative of synchronicities uh global growth uh we're seeing positive numbers across the board in, in developed markets but does it signal a boom and the uk being left behind in relative terms maybe but in real terms no i don't think so i think if, if yeah. we're at one and a quarter for gdp and the rest of the world north of three then yeah it, it doesn't look rosy but you know, on the grand scheme of things, yeah, not really. Ken Vexler, sticking with me of Acumen, Richard Jones of Bloomberg and Alistair McCaig of Fern Wealth. Next up on the programme, we take it to the markets, gilts and sterling. That's next. You're listening to Bloomberg Radio. This is The Cable. This is The Cable with Jonathan Farrow. On Bloomberg Radio. This is the cable for the City of London. Hello, hello to everyone across the capital listening on DAB Digital Radio. A special Christmas edition of the cable today on the year that was and the year to come. A look back at 2017 and a look forward to 2018. Today, we work our way through all things Brexit and the UK. Globally, it was a story of low inflation. In the UK, not so much. By the end of the year, UK inflation was through 3%, requiring the Governor of the Bank of England, Governor Carney, to write a letter to the Chancellor, Philip Hammond. But if you were looking at the bond market alone, you might have missed this story, because gilt yields are on course to end the year almost exactly where they started. So what have we learned about sterling-denominated markets? What have we learned about sterling and the bond market? Ken Vexler joining me, Director at Acumen Management, Richard Jones, FX and Rate Strategist, Alistair McCaig, Director of Investment Management at Fern Wealth. Rich, it was the year that we actually got some real inflation to take a look at. The bond market was tested and the bond market looks resilient. Why? Well, I, I think it's part, you're not going to get uh, guilt selling off when you if you got ten-year uh, German yields at you know thirty, forty basis points, and and ten-year U.S. yields struggling to get it back above two and a half. Um, it, it's been the story. I, th- I think I think the fact that that you have higher inflation because of a weaker currency in the U.K. is not going to see massive sell-off in guilt. Um, I think you look at the U.S. And and people are scratching their head because everybody thought we were going to three percent, you know, and if not higher than that. Same thing in same thing in Germany. I mean, uh, German yields once we broke through fifty earlier in the year, yeah, we're back up to one percent, and it just didn't happen. I mean, and and I think it's it's part of that global trend. I think it's a lot of it has to do with what you were talking about in the previous segment, John. Yeah. So, you know, you've got you got unemployment rates in you know four uh, percent in the UK. 
Uh, we've got it at, at all-time lows in Germany. Uh, the U.S. is 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 going to be probably be on a three-handle soon enough, and yet wage growth just isn't picking up. The inflation isn't there, and the bond market is saying uh, the, the type of inflation that you would expect to to be materializing with unemployment rates this low just isn't happening. Therefore, you need to be long fixed income. What are your thoughts on that, Al? Yeah, I think I pretty much agree with Richard. I, I think. <laughs> In reality, Sterling has had a, a, an odd year um, where we, we we certainly saw some some lows there, and I thought, but as the year progressed, I thought we might see more weakness as we got a, a, an increasingly uh, confused look about about how Brexit would be panning out, and and I guess it's it's shown a bit of resilience in in that regard. Um, it, it certainly hasn't been crushed like it could have been, um, and I think um, being well off its lows, I think that's that's worked its way into the bond market. Well, let's talk about the FX market. I enjoy some good calls from the south side. I enjoyed the parity calls for euro dollar. And in fairness to those calls, we came a couple of cents short of parity on euro dollar. For cable, for the parity calls, in fact, for calls around 110, um, they became almost laughable. And laughing loudly was Ken Vexler of Acumen Management. As these guests would join me on Bloomberg Radio and Bloomberg TV, Ken would often be listening or watching and send me various comments um, and not very favourable about them. Um, Ken, walk me through about why cable and sterling dollar parity just didn't happen and why sterling caught a bit. Look, in very simple terms, the beauty of FX generally is that it is the most efficient discounter of any NPV situation you want to look at. So it will automatically and very quickly adjust to what it perceives, both be it the political or economic risk or situation in any economy. Now, given the shock that we've seen right after the referendum and everything that that entailed, everyone played catch-up, cable got smacked and got smacked justifiably. But, as is also the nature of FX, things get overdone. So we did see those lows get overdone, and that flash crash through 118 was exactly that. It was just a flash crash, lack of liquidity, and back we were. It also set the anchor points for the market to uh, look at, meaning that if things really, really, really fell out of bed, we'd have another look at 118 because, well, there'd be calls to. But in the absence of anything catastrophic, which arguably we, we haven't seen thus far, there's been no real reason for the cable to be significantly lower than around that 125 area. The other side of FX is positioning. Now, if the entire market is positioned one way and you simply can't sell anymore, then at some point, whether it's justifiable or not, that market is going to squeeze. And squeeze it has on a number of occasions to the point where you know, even recently where the, the, the confirmation of phase one negotiations ending saw, you know, something like four or five big figures move in the cable, similarly on the Bank of England, uh, pre-jawboning uh, pre of the hike, etc. What needs to be, I think, noted here is that while we haven't gone significantly below, you know, the 125, 118 lows, the market is in no rush to start buying at above 135 or 136 in any significant way, which means that those that have been short from around here, happy to be short, happy to add higher, but yeah. they're certainly not taking it back. So I think, it, you know, it, everything needs to be looked at objectively. Parity or 110, I mean, it's laughable because the other side of it's the US dollar. Do you <laughs> really think the US is doing that well? Richard Jones. Yeah, the market got ahead of itself, and everybody got the you same think? way around. I think, I think that I think that's what happened. And 
And, and you know, I think I think the, the, it, when that happens, it could be that you know the pound is going to take an awful lot longer to 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 realize people's forecasts than than they initially thought. Because I think Ken's right. You know, the immediate knee jerk reaction was to sell it after the referendum. You know, over the next five or six months, it just traded like a dog. And then everybody's the same way around. So then you get a squeeze, uh, positioning gets squeezed out. Um, doomsday didn't occur right away. But the thing is, you know, Brexit has, actually hasn't happened yet. So I, I think the I think the telling thing, as Ken says, is we nobody's in a rush to take the pound considerably higher. They're, they're fine to cover shorts at really lousy levels, but it doesn't feel like the pound wants to shoot higher from here. It just feels um, to me that at, I, the, at the end of every year, we sit here and we start forecasting the year ahead. And on the south side, people are always itchy to make that big directional call. And I know a ton of thought goes into it, but they're the calls that get the headlines. And in the background are this, these range-bound themes. And when I talk to people about sterling and get a real handle around it from people like Ken, it just feels range-bound. Ken, is it just range-bound next year unless we get some immense surprise from Brexit negotiations? Yeah, I think so. I'm, I'm genuinely hard-pressed to, to see it markedly higher or lower, you know, be it below or above, say, 125, 135 on the wide. That in itself, calling that range is a cop-out, but there's enough juice in that to to sort of navigate the waters of whatever the next, let's say, three to six months brings us both here in the UK and or in the US. So, yeah. Big calls, yours. Al, do you have to park the big calls? Yeah, I, I think so. I mean, look, hey, let's face it. It'll be a dark day when the FX markets don't get overexcited about big pieces of, uh, of economic <laughs> and, uh, and I don't want to see that day, that's for sure. Uh, you, you're right. I, the, you know, the, the, the Brexit negotiations are just dragging along yeah. and we haven't seen anything really crystallized. And with that being the case, it's hard to make a, a sort of more strategic uh, view as far as, as sterling is concerned. I guess the, the, the bigger unknown is the, the, um, the dollar side of that equation when we're talking about cable here as to uh, where that might yeah. materialise uh, and there's plenty that, uh, <laughs> that that can uh, can bring to the equation Hey gents you're sticking with me of course Alistair McKay Director of Investment Management at Fern Wealth Richard Jones FX and Rate Strategist at Bloomberg and Ken Vexler Director at Acumen Management Stand with me next up on the programme the Prime Minister showing an uncanny ability to unite not just those in uh, the UK Brexiters and uh, Remainers as well but also on the continent a Europe united That's next You're listening to Bloomberg Radio on this special edition of The Cable. This is The Cable with Jonathan Farrow on Bloomberg Radio. This is The Cable for the City of London across the capital on DAB Digital Radio. I welcome you to a special Christmas edition of The Cable on the year that was and the year to come. As we look back at 2017 and look ahead to 2018, today we work our way through all things Brexit. And we focus today on the Prime Minister, Theresa May, who has shown an uncanny ability. Oh my God. I'm just going to do the top bit again. Theresa May has shown an uncanny ability to bring Brexiteers and Remainers together. Brexit has also managed to do the unthinkable on the continent, uniting Europe. Unlike many forecasters, the French do not have plans to follow the UK, and Brussels isn't about to disintegrate anytime soon. On the contrary, the bond in Europe post-Brexit might look even stronger. To work me through this particular subject, Ken Vexler, 
Director of Acumen Management and Richard Jones, FX and Rate Strategist at Bloomberg, alongside Alistair McCaig, Director of Investment Management at Fern Wealth. Rich, you sit in the heart of Berlin. Do you feel a more united Europe post-Brexit? Uh, yeah, for sure. It's it's palpable. It's, there's a real sense that um, not only Brexit, but I think uh, President Trump and and his approach to to Europe has really galvanized um, a lot of the uh, a lot of the, the sort of joined up thinking in the European capitals. I think the election of Macron was a big deal uh, in terms of establishing or reestablishing for the first time in a very long time a proper Franco-German access for you, where you've got uh, you've got uh, the, someone in the chancellery in the form of Angela Merkel at being able to work with with the French president. So yeah, it, it does feel very much like like uh, like Europe is coming together. Yeah. Um, and you know, you rewind uh, 12 months ago, and you know. Trump was just elected, Brexit's happened, and there was a lot of fear about what was going to happen in the continent. Uh, big challenges presented, and I, th- I think there's been a pretty a pretty definitive response in, in rejecting the type of populism in the U.S. and U.K., and, and, and moving forward with, with uniting Europe even further. Al, did we learn that in some countries, maybe more specifically in France, that this anti-European, anti-single currency, anti-euro attitude just isn't that popular? You know what? You wind the clocks back twelve months, and we'd been doing this show, you know, trying to. Oh, we'd, we'd been looking happen. at scary scenarios across Europe. We'd be saying which is the next one that's going to fall, yep. as it were, as opposed to will any of them. And and you know, I think twelve months down the road, we're in a much stronger position across the road. I, I think, I think what has materialised in the UK and ha- and and Europe looking at the UK and thinking, whoa, that does not look good. We don't want to be that. Has helped galvanise opinion to to stay the course in, and, and maybe not go as extremist as the US and the UK have in some of their, their, their the, the public's mentality of what would be better. And I think it's maybe shown quite clearly that the grass is not necessarily greener. And I think that really has helped. And, and I think Rich is right as well. France is looking as strong and as stable as it has for a long while. And it does seem that the French-German allegiance uh, is, is a real unity aspect that the EU needs to, to have confidence in, in, in its abilities to progress and keep this momentum of, as far as the economic uh, improvements are concerned. Ken, how much longer before we start worrying about Italy and the Italian election? How much time should we actually spend about worrying about it? I'm glad you asked, Jonathan. Uh, look, I, I think, how, to answer your question, how much time? None. Uh, how soon until we start hearing about it? Yeah. Uh, as soon as the turkey's digested, I think probably early January, you're bound to hear about it. And you'll hear about it first and foremost from your counterparts in the financial journalism industry. Uh, in terms of the market, we're very, very sanguine. We're, we're fairly sedate about what this could mean. I don't think it's dangerously sedate, but I think in, in the scheme of things, we're, we're sort of discounting it to what it means in real terms, which is not a whole lot at this point. So we'll hear about it. It'll get louder, but it won't really mean a whole lot. Ken Vesler, Director of Acumen Management, Richard Jones, FX and Rate Strategist, and Alistair McCaig, Director of Investment Management at Firm Wealth. Stand with me as we wrap up the hour next up on Bloomberg Radio on the cable. We take a look back at 2017 and we spend a little bit more time thinking about what 2018 might bring us in the world of Brexit and what it means for the UK and for Europe. You are listening to Bloomberg Radio across the capital on DAB Digital Radio. This is The Cable.
This is The Cable with Jonathan Farrow on Bloomberg Radio. This is The Cable. Hello, hello and welcome for the City of London across the capital on DAB Digital Radio, a special Christmas edition of The Cable on the year that was and the year to come as we look back at 2017 and look ahead to 2018. Today, we worked our way through all things Brexit, and now we wrap up with some final thoughts and some predictions as well. Joining me to do that, Ken Vexler, Director at Acumen Management, Bloomberg's Richard Jones, our FX and rate strategist, and Alistair McCaig, Director of Investment Management at Fern Wealth. Gents, it's predictions time. It can be in the markets or it can be in the politics. You need a conviction call, and we'll all discuss it around what's going to happen in 2018 on this particular topic. Ken Vexler, I'm going to begin with you, sir. Ken, your conviction call looking ahead to next year. Uh, look, I think I'll, t- I'll take a look at the US dollar and basically tell you that my conviction is that we'll see ebbs and flows in the dollar, meaning there won't be an outright trend for a stronger or weaker dollar. However, those ebbs and flows will impact directly on uh, hot money, and that means flows in and out of EM. I think the midterms uh, sort of into Q3 in the US will start to gather noise and that'll really play a part. The other side of that is I think we've seen the lows at least for the next sort of 12 to 18 months in the Chinese one. I think they've put in where they're happy for it to weaken or rather, you know, the, the other side of that uh, and where they're pulling the pin on uh, having a stronger one going forward. So as a consequence, I think that's sort of what I'll be looking at, the um, the ebbs and flows of, of the US dollar. You know, this is the Brexit show, Ken. Um, are you parking Sterling right. are you parking Sterling in the EM boat? <laughs> well, I mean, you'd be hard-pressed not to, but, it, but if, if you're really guns ahead, I think we're 125 by 135 on the wide in cable, yeah. and, you know, buy them and sell them where you, where you see fit. That, right. that is... That's where we're going to go. I mean, you've taken me to a place that I wanted to go to anyway. It's just the idea that actually no one really wants to talk about Brexit at all. I mean, every time you guys have come on the show with me over the last year, um, we've all sat here and just thought, do we have to do this? Do we have to? Is there actually any news? Rich, is that going to be next year as well? Yeah, if you're bored of it already, get settle in because I think it's going to be a lot more of the same. Um, you know, and I, I don't, I could see us sitting down this time next year, and cable itself will not have moved an awful lot. There'll be a lot of noise, a lot of up and down, a lot of toing and froing, but the closing level might not be a million miles away from here. Where I think we could get some movement in the pound is I think Euro Sterling could push higher, and I think that's sort of a broad-based thing. I think, I think we've had a massive move higher in, in Euro dollar this year. I think we'll probably get a continual grind higher in euro dollar. Nothing, not not quite to the extent we saw this year, but I think cable really does nothing, and therefore euro sterling probably goes up um, more, a, a little bit more than it did this year. Um, and, and I think just in general, uh, I, I I think we're going to get more of the same. I think equities are going to probably edge higher rather than sort of scream higher like they did this year. I, I don't think that we're going to get the, the same level of of of, uh, of return if you if you're long stocks, but I think it'll probably be okay. And uh, and and I don't think I don't think bond yields are going to scream higher. They're not going to collapse. I think they're probably going to be very noisy as they have been this year, and not at a, at a hell of a, a, a long way away from where we are right now. Alison McKay. Okay, um, I think we're going to see a continuation of euro strength, um, and I don't think with the same enthusiasm and robustness that we've seen this year. But nonetheless, 
I think uh, Richard's grind higher comment is probably uh, on the money. Euro Swissy is obviously uh, very close to the heart and very close to, to, to our clients. I think we will see that continue to, uh, to, to, to break higher. Um, and I don't know whether the next 12 months is going to give us the ability to, to flirt with the concept of breaking into that sort of 120 region again. But I think we're, we're going to at least head in that sort of direction. I think we, uh, we're probably going to see equities continue to, to edge higher. I am conscious that we're seeing quite a lot of equities pretty highly valued. Um, but by the same token, the, the real catalysts for, um, for us to get out of this, the trend is your friend mentality, haven't, they're not punching me in the face at this point in time. Um, I'm conscious of, of how, how I feel and yeah. the edginess, if you will, but there's, there's just not the headwinds yet to make me change the mentality as far as equities are concerned. And then the outlier, I think, is going to be some of these smaller border issues in and around Europe that might just be catalysts for bigger problems to materialize. Really? And by that, I'm talking... Catalan, Gibraltar, You think that's going to bubble away a little bit more? Well, I, you know, the borders around Europe have been moving, uh, moving landlines for, yeah. for, for centuries. Um, and you do feel that there's a lot of uh, strong opinion uh, when it comes to these sort of things. And that might, might escalate to something else more, more okay. politically. So, uh, I, I, you know, I keep, keep my eye open for that. Quick fire round. Yes or no answers only. Does Prime Minister May keep a job next year? Yes or no, Ken? Yes. Rich? Yes. Al? Yes. Do we get another bank hike, Bank of England rate hike next year, Ken? No. Rich? No. Al? No. If we do this show next year, will we all be sick of talking about Brexit again? <laughs> Ken? Yours. Rich? <laughs> yes. Sorry, yes. Al? <laughs> No, love it all day. Oh, long. you love it? No, you don't. That is a total lie. That is a total lie. You can't leave me with a lie, Alison McKay. You do not like talking about Brexit. Nobody does. Uh, no. Gents, can I just take the opportunity to thank you for your contribution to this show over the last year? It started about nine months ago, and I went through a list of people that I really, really wanted to talk to on a regular basis to create a cast of like friends of the program, of which the three of you I included, and you've really made this program what it is. So if you've got any listeners out there that don't like this program, you can blame Ken Vexler, Richard Jones, and Alistair McCaig as three of the people that have made it what it is. But for me, I've loved it. It's one of my favourite parts of the day. It's the most relaxing part of the day and the most enjoyable part of the day for me as well. And you guys have helped make that happen. So thank you very much. And I hope you're all enjoying your holidays. To Ken Vexler, Director at Acumen Management, to Richard Jones, Bloomberg's FX and Rate Strategist, and to Alistair McCaig, Director of Investment Management at Fern Wealth. This was The Cable, a special Christmas edition on Brexit. I hope it hasn't been as tedious to listen to as it has been to cover over the last year or so this is Bloomberg Radio this was The Cable 